This week, we answer a few questions from one of our listeners, all centered around the idea of hiring your first employee. Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. How are you doing, Tyler? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm still on vacation. You're, you're laughing at me. <laughs> I'm a little frazzled right now, but no, I'm, on, uh, I'm still in LA, uh, kind of near the tail end of my vacation and uh, getting back to real life in a couple days here. And this is our first Tuesday podcast. How do you feel about that? I don't know. There was no real logic behind Thursday being the day in the first place. That's just when we did it, right? It definitely feels different. Yeah. Thursday's more like end of the week. You've actually done some stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm guessing. Right now I feel behind. Yeah. Well, well, and this will be a bad one because we, I shouldn't say a bad episode, but like we recorded just two business days ago, so, or three business days ago. So anyway, short yeah, so week, but. It feels like we just talked. Yeah. Um, but the good news is we've got uh, a listener question to talk about, so we don't have to come up with our own topics today. <laughs> cool. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we jump into the listener question? I don't think so. I, I really haven't been doing any work at all. Do you? I mean, nothing that I I feel is necessary to report. I'm I'm I'll, I'll talk about it next week. So okay, sounds let's good. Just jump in. Cool. Yeah. And so this is from uh, Akshay from Userbit, uh, who's been a longtime supporter of the podcast. Um, I'm going to play his. He kind of has four questions in one. I'm going to play the whole thing, and then we'll just start talking about it. Uh, yeah. Here we go. Hey, Rick and Tyler. First of all, thank you so much for Startup to Last. It is one of my favorite podcasts, and I've learned a lot from your discussions. My questions are around the topic of first hire for a bootstrapped company. Okay, first question. For bootstrappers, do you recommend contractors or full-times? What are the pros and cons of each? Question number two. Taking away the other expenses, how much revenue or cash reserves should a company have in proportion to the salary for the first employee? Question three. Where did you or would you look for potential candidates? And finally, these days bootstrapped companies have lost some of their perks as things like remote work and flexible hours are becoming pretty standard. Is there any advantage that we can still offer potential candidates that bigger companies or smaller funded startups cannot? I look forward to listening to your thoughts. Keep up the good work. All right. Interesting questions. Nice bird chirping noises in the background. It's very serene. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to imagine like what the setting was. It's, it sounded really natural. Yeah, like he's in, it's like Bambi, like there's <laughs> woodland critters all around. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so there's four questions there. I, guess, I mean, unless you think a different answer makes sense, you want to just start at the beginning? The first one was like contractor versus full-time? Well, I, I maybe before we go into the specific questions, you know, this all, the, the theme is first hire. Um, and that's a big, big decision. It's yeah. a, it's a hard thing to know when to do that, how to do it, um, what, you know, what expectations to set. And, and so I think this is a really hard thing and it's, it's one of those, this isn't, there isn't really a, a, uh, tried and true framework that fits everyone. Um, this is a very, um, dependent on the business, the location, uh, the job. Um, so I just want to kind of disclaim that. And I, I guess, um, what it, what is your reaction to, 
like, I guess, when do you, when do you know when you're ready? I, I, I guess the most important question is to me is when do you know you're ready to bring someone on? Mm-hmm. Um, and at what point does that become a full-time person versus a, you know, a part-time person? I guess that's how I would reframe the question a little bit to, to get us started. Yeah, although even a part-time person, I think, is different from a contractor. Uh, so there's kind of like full-time versus part-time, and then there's like contractor versus W-2. And I'd probably look at these from both dimensions. Because for less knowing CRM, I agree with you, it's like a huge decision. I don't think we put a ton of thought into it. And you can like trace my life, not my business life, my whole life right now, back to the the first decision to hire somebody, which we didn't put a lot of thought into. And like, Rick, you and I have talked about this before, that you're a little nervous about hiring people because you're, it sort of adds a pretty important constraint because now you kind of owe something to that person, right? Which is why this is so important to think about. Yeah. And I think there's another factor, which is when you've burnt people, when you've burnt out on hiring the wrong people before mm-hmm. you, and you from overpromising or setting the wrong expectations, you're much, I'm very gun shy. Um, and so there's a mentality, I think depends on what you want to promise and, or under promise and over deliver and where you are as a business, but how do you want to, how do you want to have this conversation? Well, let's start with, I think what's conventional wisdom here. I think conventional wisdom is start with contractors and I, maybe, maybe we can unpack, unpack why that's the case. Um, and as is always true. It's not the right answer for everybody, but it's probably helpful to understand why a lot of people go that route. Totally. And you didn't, and I'd love to know why you didn't. Yeah. I honestly, first of all, I don't think I really thought about it, but also for me, a big part of hiring has always sort of been like empire building sort of, um, that sounds bad and maybe it is, but like I get, I derive pleasure and like, like we all want to feel rewarded in what we're doing. I get reward from building a team. Now, maybe I didn't know that at the time, but I, I kind of, I think I thought of my success and the business's success partially being connected to the headcount. And there's a lot of people on the other side of this that are like, oh, headcount doesn't matter at all. The only thing that matters is X. Maybe they say profit, or maybe they say how much free time you have to spend with your family. And the answer is like, no one can tell you what matters. I like building a team. It comes with a lot of headaches, a lot of commitments, but I like it. Other people don't. Um, so that's, I, th- I think that's, I'm kind of like making up reasoning that didn't exist at the time, but I think that's what interested me is I was interested in the empire and you don't get an empire by hiring a, a bunch of contractors. I don't yeah. think. Well, maybe you didn't hire contractors. You, I think you had, who was your first hire? If you can talk about that and how did yeah. you decide to go about making that first hire? Did, did you, what did you promise that person? Like, how, how did you, yeah. how did you feel were you naive and you just sort of fell into it or was it this thing that uh, was super thoughtful? Probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I, in the early days of the company, we tried to like innovate on everything and like just think about everything from first principles. And I think there's like good arguments for doing that and also good arguments against it. But what so Bracken and I were not full time yet. We were both still part time working other jobs on the side. And we, we made enough money that we were like, one of us could go full time at this point. And before we did that, we were like, well, let's just think for a second. Is there anything else we want to do with this money? And we thought like spending it on advertising, probably we, we don't know how to do that wisely. So it's not that 
whatever you could imagine other expenses. And eventually we got to, well, what if we hired somebody? Who would we hire? And what we agreed on is we would hire a customer service person because by taking customer service off our plate, that would actually give us more time to work on product. And arguably it would have as big or bigger of an impact as one of us going full-time. So that's what we did. And I, I just happened... A lot of my hiring throughout the days has been kind of a crime of opportunity where it's like, I knew a person that I thought would be a really good fit. Hmm. He's still with the company today. Michael Wolner, you know him, Rick. Um, if he hadn't, if I didn't know him, there's a very good chance we would have made that hire. But I was like, I know someone who's already doing customer service at a startup. I trust him. I think he'd be a good fit. And so that's what we decided to do. And at the time of the, when you decided to hire, did you, where, where were you roughly in monthly recurring revenue? Yeah, I think probably after we didn't have major expenses, but taking away like hosting and marketing, whatever those expenses were, I think we probably had something like 80,000 a year ish in profit, which if I recall correctly, I took half of it and then uh, Michael took half of it. And then we both kind of increased our salaries together from there. So that is one thing I would say if you're hiring full time, like find someone who wants to be almost like a late stage co-founder or who like who's willing to take risk and stuff like that. As we've gotten more mature as a company, I've hired a lot more people who don't want the chaos of a startup. And it would be so much harder to hire that. As, if that's your first hire, you're going to feel super constrained because you're going to feel like you need to protect them. Whereas if you can find someone who wants to take the risk and is comfortable with it, it doesn't impose nearly as many constraints. I don't think. I actually really like that, uh, that, that uh, decision point because contractors are very generally when you go to the contractor you're you're saying hey do abc you have to have a pro- pretty much a spelled out task um, or group of tasks that you want them to do and you're pretty much going to be paying sometimes project based but most of the time it's going to be an hourly fee for for getting some predictable task done um with what you're what you're saying for a full timer and especially the first full timer is completely different it's you're probably going to have Unknown tasks um, and things that uh, you are you 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 think might get to, need to get done, but you aren't one hundred percent sure. The job could change. Mm-hmm. Uh, the job could go away. Um, there there are a lot of factors where you need you, the type of person that you're going to hire, and is it needs to be different. Trying to put a trying to hire a contractor mindset full time for your first hire won't go well. Can yeah. you? I wonder if the inverse of that is true. Can you? Can you find a f- potential full timer that has like the the right pieces and start him out as a contractor? Yeah, that, I was just going to say that too. I think if if you can find someone who's able to do that, that's great. Um, the, the The whole advantage to a contractor, in my opinion, is optionality. If you realize you've made a mistake, you hired the wrong person, you thought there was a full time amount of work, but there's not any of those things with a contractor. You you're basically just giving yourself permission to cancel it at any moment. Whereas, of course, you can fire a W-2 employee, but it it kind of has different meaning to fire someone versus to not renew a contractor. So yeah, if you can explore a re- working relationship with someone as a contractor that might turn into something full-time, I think that's probably ideal. In, in your situation, though, you had a previous relationship. They had a, uh, a job that was very relevant and... Um, you did you disclaim to to that first hire at all that hey like this job may go may go away in six months but and I'm sorry for that in advance. You know I don't remember super well. I th- I, I know he certainly knew he was taking a risk. Um, 
and you know he talked to his parents and everyone was like this is stupid don't do it i don't think it was like lost on him that it was a risk i I don't remember specifically did i say i don't think i like gave myself an out to fire him but the company itself could have failed i think and he he knew that going yeah um what did what what were if you could say like why he decided to take the risk uh maybe kind of two factors what what were his personality like what made Mm -hmm. him unique and, and right for that from a personal standpoint, but then also what made less annoying CRM attractive to him. Yeah. I'm just going to speak for him, but pr- I might be getting it wrong. Yeah. But I think at least part of it is he was. So first of all, if you offer this to a programmer, it's probably less appealing because they're like my, the opportunity cost is a lot lower. Like I was offering a risk, but not necessarily like less pay than he was getting before, you know, cause a customer service position it, like for someone to become employee number one it, it's potentially huge upside for a customer service person in a way that's maybe not for developers so that's i think part of why he took the risk relative to the current customer service position at a different company right and and whatever the career trajectory would have yeah. been but, but but i also think you and i have talked about privilege a lot before like not that you necessarily need to go out and find someone with privilege although i i don't think it's a coincidence that privileged people tend to start companies and be early employees at companies because like if you if you can afford to take the, if you have a safety net behind you, is it really that big of a risk? Like if it had failed, he just would have gotten some other job. I, I don't think it would have been that big of a deal for him if it had failed. So he probably had the um, room and buffer to, to handle personal failure that comes mm-hmm. from working at a startup and, hand, and handle the risk. Um, what, what, what was the upside to him other than career trajectory? You, you mentioned career trajectory. Was there any sort of financial upside that you offered? Yeah, we kind of had a, well, uh, not that I guaranteed him. Maybe we can talk about this more and like, how do you incentivize people to join? We did end up having a profit sharing program, but Mm -hmm. I don't think he actually, we didn't formalize that until like higher number two or three. So I think he kind of had a vague sense of like, if this goes well, it could, it could pay off for him. And it has, like it did work out really well for him, Mm -hmm. but I don't know that I guaranteed him anything. Cool. So there was like kind of generic... Hey, th- if this works well, you'll make more money than you're making now. If it doesn't work, we're going to go do something else. Uh, worst case, you're going to learn a ton about running a business and get to work with friends. Yeah. And I'd, we'd already been doing it for two years, as has Akshay, I believe, with UserBit. Like, mm-hmm. it's been going for a while. So it's not like a 50 50 chance of going out of business. You know, it's, it's, it's de risked somewhat. What is, what is the ratio of, go- what was your risk of going out of business in a percentage term based on how you felt at the time of the first hire? Very low. I thought very low, but I actually want to talk about that a little bit in the next question. Okay. All right. I'm interested in you though, because let let me flip this back on you. You are currently a solo founder. In in your previous life, you managed, I think, what, 60 people was maybe the biggest it got? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. So you've managed a mid-sized or whatever startup, Um, but right now you're solo. You've had like interns and stuff like that, but you don't have a co-founder. You don't have any employees what are you thinking here in terms of contractors versus full full timers? Yeah. And like why you might do one versus the other. Yeah. So I, for me, it's, I think I'm, I employ contractors already. So, you know, I've, I've used people to help me do certain tasks. So I think what is implied by this question is more of a, like a functional contractor. That's like a core part of the recurring business. Yeah, what, like what have you done that you, when you say you've hired, contractors? I've had someone design something for me. I've mm-hmm. had an, you know, I paid an intern, a, a contractor to be a contractor for as a paid intern for three months. Um, you know, th- 
little things like that, but not to grow. Like I haven't hired anyone with the intent to grow the business. And I think that's what mm-hmm. is implied by this question. So I want to, it's like put, your team. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like I, the people I've hired were, are, are more like, Hey, I needed to get a, a very small job done. It was either, it was more of like a time hire or a long-term investment in relationships hire. It, like which was the internship program. So yeah. this is different. This is, I think for, for this question, I'm thinking like, I want to grow the business. Will bringing someone on allow me to grow, like, like multiply my revenue or grow faster, you know, at a faster pace? We'll unlock some growth opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, when you ask me that question, it's like, I don't have a lever for a contractor to pull to do that. I don't have a lever for a full-timer to pull to do that. I Therefore, I'm not thinking about this right now. Um, mm-hmm. So if, if, I had some, if, I, if I had limits on my time to go try things and figure... If I couldn't spend time trying to grow, then I might hire a contractor or a full-timer to take something off my plate so I could go experiment. I don't have that problem right now, so I'm not hitting up on any limits. I also don't have tasks that I could, I could do more of that I feel confident enough to hire someone for. Uh, I see a lot of parallels with, uh, I don't know if it was maybe a couple months ago, we talked about the difference of um, like equity financing versus debt financing. And I think the point you made was kind of go borrow money, do debt financing. If you have something that works, like it's a coin operated machine, basically, because you know, you'll be able to pay it back. Giving up equity, like traditional, like startup investing, you do that when there's uncertainty. When you're like, I'm not super confident this is going to work. I almost wonder if there's a parallel there with the W two versus contractor type of thing, where it's like, if you just needed a homepage to get designed, why would you bring someone onto your team to do that? You don't need to. It's it's a one time project. It's and it's coin operated. Whereas what you were saying about Michael joining my team there was a lot more uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe a uh, full-timer is going to be closer to being a partner, closer to being almost like another founder, and you don't have to know exactly what they're going to do. And I would just add a third category here, which is do-it-yourself, um, founder sure. you know, responsibility. And, and, it, and you really, like the full, t- the full, the uncertainty should probably be handled by you in a bootstrap scenario until you've re- used up all of your capacity or... Mm-hmm you know, there's not, there's a significant opportunity cost on, um, that time. And so, uh, or, you know, there's, you can afford, you've reached a point where you can afford, uh, to bring on a full-time employee. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and to compare back to me, like I had a lot of customer service, maybe it wasn't full-time, but it was 60 or 80% time customer service workload. So we actually, it was pretty clear what Michael's going to come on and do, but you don't have that right now. No. And I don't need it. Like, I could create a, a, a situation very soon where that happens, but from, from when I'm talking about this, I just want to disclaim that it's completely hypothetical. Yeah. Um, one situation that I've, I, I, but I always think through this, like I think because I had such troubled hiring uh, at my last company, I, I definitely think overthink about this. Like I'm thinking about it now, you yeah. know, and it's probably six to eighteen months away. If you had to guess, what what do you think six to eighteen months from now? Do you think you'll hire a contractor? Do you think you'll try to find like a partner, full time type person? That's a good question. I 
for me, uh, I think I'll probably go full timer, um, primarily because the, to figure out this business at the end of the day, the thing that's going to, the, the major roadblock to scale is scaling the service component. It's not a SaaS company. It's a software enabled services company, really productized mm-hmm. service company. And if I can't scale people full time in a customer in, in the health insurance coach role, this business doesn't ever get to an exciting place. So the quicker I can get to de-risking full-time people doing that, the better. Um, uh, so that's probably where I would go. I've definitely heard that before. And t- t- like a mental model for this is it's outsourcing versus insourcing. And you can even go broader than do you hire a real employee versus a contractor? Like when you buy a laptop from Apple, it was made by some factory in China. Like, like, a hundred thousand different people were involved in making that. You didn't like hire someone to fabricate the chip for you, right? You're outsourcing the computer getting made and getting to you. That's like one extreme. And the other far extreme is maybe like a co-founder. And there's lots of steps between them. And hiring a contractor is actually much closer to, to a real employee than most forms of outsourcing are. Anyway, within that model, I've heard what you just said before, that if it's core to your business, don't outsource it. Um, for you, scaling service is going to be core to your business. Designing your homepage was not core to your business. So yeah, so, so I, th- I think that's one, a pretty good model for thinking about which one you do. I do like the contractor idea for getting to know someone. So I, mm. I could see a use case for contractor of being like, hey, I have a job that I believe tests whether someone would be good at this full-time role. I'm going to go get people to do this contractor role and then hire one of them. I could yeah, see it as sh- that. It's just hard because most people aren't contracting right now. So you're, you're limiting your pool. Now, maybe that's fine. You only need to hire one person, but like, is the right fit someone who wouldn't be doing contract work right now? Totally. Is a question I ask yourself. Yeah, totally. And, but there's another factor here, which is kind of comes back to what opportunity am I leaving on the table? Um, so what if I, there there is in in my old days before I was, I, I knew what I didn't know. I would have just, I'd probably be talking right now and going, we're going to build a billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would recruit someone who probably has a lot of privilege to come on for zero to no salary and promise them upside without write, putting it in writing. Um, and then- so what happened it, to both of us. Right? Yeah. And it would work, <laughs> right? Or it wouldn't. And if it didn't work, I'd have an unhappy employee um, and I would learn, oh, that sucks. This employee hates me now because I overpromised and underdelivered. Or it might work and they're really happy and we figure it out. We work it out. It's, I wish I could have that naivety again. Okay. This is the perfect segue to the next question. Can we move on to the next question? Because yes. I think what you're saying is going to work well. I'm going to play the audio from it again because I'm guessing everyone already forgot what it is. Question number two. Taking away the other expenses, how much revenue or cash reserves should a company have in proportion to the salary for the first employee? Okay. So hopefully it's obvious how this connects to what you just said. But basically, like, how much of a risk are you willing to take of everything failing and this is one where I actually think in this bootstrapped world we're in, most people get it, in my opinion, wrong. I know there's no universal right or wrong answer. Everyone has different risk tolerances. But there is tremendous leverage to be had from being willing to take a risk. And to me, a one or a two or three person business going under is just not the end of the world the way many people think it is. So I... The way I always operated was until we were at maybe five or six employees, 
if this goes out of business, that's just how it is. And but we're going to invest every dollar we have. We're not going to like play it safe here. What, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I I think I agree with it. If you can afford to do that, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, I guess um, it's, it's, it's what I almost hear is like we're going to risk like we're going to risk like a we're going to bootstrap the company but risk and have the mentality of a of a venture back company. Yeah. Yeah, right. That and that but, but what point at what point do you so we talk a lot about startup to last building and buffer um mm-hmm. and I think that's what that, that's where this question is. It's like buffer is a concept that we could apply to a lot of different things. Like buffer you know, when you're planning, you know, instead of having a goal of you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year, you say, I'm going to have a, I'm going to build some buffer and say, we only need 50 K. Um, and it takes pressure off of people. What I'm hearing you say is you kind of had a startup mentality in the early days where it was like, there wasn't a lot of buffer. Um, yeah. and that you're okay with that. I think that's right. And let's unpack this a little bit when there's just one person or just founders, however many founders there may be, your buffer is your personal finances, right? Because w- whether you're an LLC or not, you can still think of your business as a pass-through entity sort of and say like, if the business needs more money, I can give it to it. Like if the, if revenue drops, I'll live off savings or whatever. And some people have savings and some don't, but like, like you right now, Rick, your personal finances are not really distinct from the business's finances, even if from a legal standpoint they are, mm-hmm. right? It is a lot harder when you bring on that first person because now you're saying, well, it's not quite as easy to accept, you know, oh, there's a, a recession Let's just stop paying people or whatever, right? So I do think it requires more thought. But yeah, I kind of think employee number one, employee number two probably should understand the risk they're taking and they should be given upside, I hope, to make it worth it for them. But the company's going to move so much faster if you're not worried about... Like a two-person company shouldn't survive a recession, I don't think. So here's what what I'm hearing. I'll just summarize. Cash reserves don't matter for your first employee. Yes, just I, that's that's my hire, if you hire the like based on our our discussion on the first question, which is you hire a full time person who understands the risk and is willing to just kind of go with the flow. Um, and that means no cash reserves. Now, what if you're a little less risk averse? Uh, I mean, you're a little yeah. a little less. Um, you are more risk averse. What, how would you change that answer? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think a founder should be okay. like the, the, I think the question is, what if the employee is less risk averse? Don't hire them. Either don't hire them or yeah, you, I, I think basically the, like having done this once before, I know that's a small sample size, but like the company is going to transition from a, t- you know, take risks, be a startup model to a, this is a safe place to work model. And you get to decide when that happens. But Make no mistake, things will slow down when you transition to the safe, like this is, you know, we have buffer. And so the later you can push back that point, the more you can get done when the risk is acceptable. I also want to talk about that when that transition happens, you're going to upset some people. Like the, mm-hmm. some, yeah, some people, two, two of our employees left because of this. Yeah. And do you think that's okay to sort of bait and switch? Do you think it's okay to, in the early days, say, hey, we're, we're <laughs> that, we're company A. And then whenever you you feel like it, sort of pull a base camp and be, we're now we're company B. That's a, it's such a good question. I, I want to be clear. I didn't know that we were going to change. Like I meant it when I was like, we're going to be a billion dollar company. I know, I this is it. why I wish I had my, like, I wish <laughs> yeah. I was still naive because I feel, I'd feel more comfortable going down the path that you're talking about. But I do, I do feel like it's, if I know I'm going to 
switch back. Maybe it's disingenuous somehow. Yeah, but there's other ways to offer upside. So for example, take Michael. He's on the customer service side. So we hired, uh, f- there's me and Bracken, the two co-founders. We hired four people that we call partners in the early days, two of whom have now left. Michael does customer service. Alex does uh, kind of biz dev. Those are the two who are still around. And then we had a kind of marketing data science guy and a programmer. The marketing data science and programmer, they needed, they're like, you know, the programmer, if, if, he's, if you're in the Bay Area and you could work at Google, you're turning down a $500,000 a year salary to come work at a startup. You need to be promised, you know, tens of millions of dollars if it works. Yeah. If you're, a customer service person doesn't need that. Like Michael is not getting tens of millions of dollars right now, but he's getting a much better salary than he would at any other job. So I do think you can offer you can offer the upside without lying about unicorn ambitions potentially. Or you can just say, "Hey, listen, we're in the we're in at some point this business will be." Uh, a different mindset, but to get mm-hmm. to the point where we have the option to be that different mindset, we've got to, we've got to be a startup and we've got yeah. to be risky and we've got to be, um, a place where that, that, um, you know, isn't, doesn't have buffer. Yeah. And another way to offer this upside without lying is to just say like, I don't know what the future holds, but I, the CEO can't get rich if you don't get rich. That's and that's I, again. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. We just kind of lucked into this, but that's what we did. We basically said, "You don't have any guarantee that you're going to be, be making millions of dollars, but if I do, you will too." That was the deal, and neither of us are now. You know how how explicit were you about how that would take place, or was that just sort of like a that that was the profit share thing that for that first hire we didn't have for the first hire. I was just kind of like, we know each other, like it'll work out for you, right? The the next two people we hired, we needed a little bit more of a formalized agreement, and that's when we put the profit share together. Cool, cool. That's helpful. I I, I think uh, one th- one thing that I really value, and it's more of a personal value, and it is consistency. And what I think you may have just unlocked for me is a way to be consistent, but inconsistent at the same time, um, because of with with an explanation of like, listen, uh, when. When we're in our infancy, we've got to survive and mm-hmm. surviving means we play by these rules at some point. And here's where I think it's going to be right now. This could change, but here's where I think this is when we will make the shift. We're going to shift from surviving to more of a thriving atmosphere. And um, here's what the world looks like. If you come in while you were in the surviving mode, you're going to have more upside. That's why yeah. you should get in the in the door early. Absolutely. Which, which is how it worked out at Lesson Learning Serum. Yeah, we're, none of us are becoming billionaires, but the, those first four people are getting paid more than anyone else because I, I made promises back then. Yep. Uh, uh, another trick here is like, depending on who you need to hire, someone like fresh out of college or otherwise kind of young and still needing to prove themselves is a good middle ground here where you can be like, listen, you're going you're gonna to get so much experience here. It's the, the upside for you is not becoming a billionaire. The upside for you is that this... In two years, even if this fails, you're going to have 10 years worth of experience. That's another way to attract people, I think. Yeah. So you got to, what I'm hearing is be very clear about what you can offer and sell the heck out of it. Um, and then don't go back on your words. Yeah. Now to pull this back to, the question was how much cash reserves should you, we're, we're kind of answering one of the future questions mm-hmm. right now, but do you do you have any thoughts on the cash reserve thing? Am I being a little bit too dogmatic saying like founders should be willing to take the risk? I think cash reserves is the wrong question. I think it's how much stability. Like 
I think the real question is here is how much confidence did you have before you make a, in the business sustainability, mm. uh, before you make a hire. And I think you should have confidence that you can give whatever per- person that you're hiring a fair chance at succeeding in whatever role that you're doing within their control. Um, before, you know, before you ha- ran out of money. <laughs> no, I, I love it. That That's such a great point because less knowing CRM is a recurring, probably most people listening to this are kind of in the SaaS space. You could have zero cash reserves would be like, we have two years of history with us never shrinking revenue. It only goes up. That's, that's a different type of certainty than cash reserves, but totally. it still factors into the yeah, equation. Yeah, it's like, what, do you, what, is your, what, is your, what is your confidence in future cash availability? And d- does that confidence allow this person with the increased expense to come in and have a fair shot at not yeah. screwing things up or, or hitting whatever goal, less, giving you confidence in whatever you want them to do? When I'm, when t- when I came into here with a startup to last mindset going, you shouldn't hire someone until you know exactly, you know, they're at eight, 70, 80%. And I'm sort of mm-hmm. shifting to, you're really hiring part, like semi pseudo partners, um, with your first few hires. And, uh, that, that means that, um, you're, you're, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. There's going to be inherent uncertainty in the role that you're hiring them for, which means you, you need to have some certainty in, in sort of, you need to have some, be able to provide some security for some amount of time that is sufficient for that person to prove themselves. Otherwise it's unfair. Yeah. And the more you communicate that uncertainty to them, the less you're doing something, you know, malicious wrong to them. I think, uh, I'll just, I want to shift what I said earlier. I think we're both kind of meeting in the middle here. I was probably a little too strong in like, don't have any cash reserves or this or that. But let me rephrase it and just say this. It is okay if your startup couldn't handle a recession or couldn't handle some kind of like pretty major unexpected event. I think the level of stability you're talking about, if it were me, I'd be saying, if things just go as normal, there's some ups, there's some downs. I feel pretty confident we'll be able to cover things. If 2008 happens again, maybe we'll fail. That's so. I think you can't be paralyzed by like I have to be able to handle all possible disaster scenarios before hiring someone. Yeah, I, I, I think what you you want to put people in a situation that is fair. Yeah, and you, you know, I think at the end of the day, you have to be able to you know, say, "Here's the position I'm putting you in. Here's transparently where the company is. Here's where I believe it can go. Do you think this is a fair job?" Yeah. <laughs> and and that's a contract that you have verbally when you hire someone at this stage. Yeah, I like it. Okay, let me play question number three here. Question three. Where did you or would you look for potential candidates? So, yeah, basically, how do you find your first hire? This is almost certainly going to depend a lot on are you going with the contractor route? Are you remote or not? All that kind of stuff. But uh, I don't know. What, what's your first reaction to this? I haven't thought about it enough to really... Um, think about this, but again, I just want to disclaim like who, who's the person you're looking for? Like what, what I heard Tyler say was be clear about what role first you want to hire for, what skill sets. Ideally it's a skill set that up levels you and your abilities, but also uh, enables you to provide upside to that person. Hiring a, like if, if I was trying to hire a programmer, I'd, I'd probably do what you do here and try to hire a college graduate and train them to be a programmer versus trying to hire a programmer. 
if I were trying to hire a customer service person, I'd probably look at my network and go, who do I know who's entry-level customer service that is probably you know, a superstar in the making um, and, and can I accelerate their career? Yeah. This definitely is an argument for being like, you're the type of person, Rick, who you're always meeting people and like you keep relationships going and stuff like that so that when you need to say, I need a person with these characteristics, maybe you just happen to know them already. That's it's hard to do from There's scratch. a difference. I think there's a difference between, I'm, I have a lot of, di- I have a n- high number of contacts. I think w- Michael to you is a deep relationship um, yeah. that I'm going to just be very clear about that. Like the, Michael is not someone that you met at a, a trade show and then c- had lunch every now and again. This was a, someone that you really trusted as a person, right? Yes, but actually, I so he was kind of a friend of a friend. Like we both moved to San Francisco and had the same friend group, but we had not met each other. And I'd become friends with him through these friends of friends. But my relationship with him is a lot stronger now than it was okay, at that time. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it feels like network. My personal network would be where I would go. Uh, yeah. Well, so there, of course, there's a lot of it depends and uncertainty. Yeah. Let me say one thing that I feel reasonably certain about. If the we said earlier, there's different types of people you want to hire. Is this going to be more of a partner, co-founder type relationship, or is this going to be like a coin-operated? If it's a partner relationship type thing, I would be very, very hesitant to hire someone like that that you haven't worked with before. That could be worked with at a previous job. That could be worked with as a contractor, at like to do the contract to full time thing, or it could be you hire them as an entry level person or a, a mid mid level person at your current organization. And then once you've developed a rapport with them, you level them up at that point. But I'd be really nervous in the early days to be like, I'm bringing on someone to lead marketing and I don't really know them that well or something yeah. along those lines. So assuming you don't have anyone in your network that fits the bill, how do you go develop relationships with people? Assuming that there's not a contract to hire opportunity, you've got to make a decision. Yeah, it probably depends a lot. I think like hiring remotely is in many ways, a lot easier. There's probably some challenges because you're competing with every other company, but like, I think probably I just go on Twitter or I go on like these remote job boards and just try and find someone, I guess. I don't know. I've never done that before, honestly. You've, you've had a, you've leveraged your network. Um, your network is what, I mean, it sounds like you hired four people from your network. Yeah. Yeah. My first four hires were all, uh, three of them were friends of mine and one of them was like he worked for my dad and we like, we'd only met a couple times, but we were quasi friends from that. So, so I think that's a, maybe that's the next thing. First is immediate network is, but second is finding, identify the people that you really respect that you maybe can't hire right now or aren't a fit and find out who they know and mm-hmm. would highly endorse and get introductions to those people and sort of work that process. Yeah. And then if you still don't have anyone, I think you have to fork off and be like, are we, you can go entry level and it requires a lot of patience and a lot of work, but find someone who maybe doesn't have the skills you want, but has the potential. That's one path. And that's probably like career fairs at colleges, basically young people. Not that, of course it could be an old person, but most old people are more established in their careers already. The other option is go find someone who's already got the skills. And with that, I don't, if your network can't do it, I don't have a better idea than go post on a job board or something. Which is really another, which is one tactic for building your network. Like, if you don't have a net, if you can't find people through your immediate network or your secondary network, go, you know, go get, go find, figure out how to meet people. Yeah. My closing thought here is this is sales recruiting. 
the whole recruiting process from getting leads, doing the interview is the sales process, onboarding them is customer success, everything that every founder knows how to do to get customers. It's basically the same process where you just have to try a bunch of stuff. You have to measure what works and what doesn't and kind of hustle. It's hard when you only need to make one hire because you don't have a chance to iterate in the same way, but the same concepts apply, I think. At what point do you know you're ready to make a hire? In terms of like when you're in, like know that someone passes your interview bar? No, like like I'm clearly not ready to make a hire, but I guess maybe I answered the question earlier, but it's once I know that hiring a person is going to unlock a next level of growth. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this, I'm, this is more of a personal question, but I think it might apply to Akshay is like, okay, I'm, maybe I'm not sure if I need to hire someone right now, but I'm kind of, this conversation is taking me like, maybe I should just hire someone before open enrollment this year, just because that would be stupid not to. Yeah. I think it depends so much. My impression for you has been the primary reason not to hire yet is because you didn't know what you wanted. Mm-hmm. Like is until you hire, you have total flexibility to make the company whatever you want. Every person you hire limits that flexibility. So that to me was the main argument for you not. So one, one component of, of being ready to hire is knowing what you want. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the second is having some level of confidence that that person will have a fair shot um, and the, and the time to pr- prove themselves and, and t- turn the job into a win, um, which gets into the cash reserves. And the, the third, I guess is, um, I guess that's it. And I've talked before about that, uh, like the role of an entrepreneur versus CEO thing, where if so, for an, let's fast forward down the line where you're, you're doing hire number 20. I would not make a hire if you if the company isn't already doing their job effectively. If it hasn't been figured out, it's the entrepreneur's job to figure it out before you hire someone. I think there's a bit of an exception to that for the, your first couple hires, because you could maybe hire someone like a co-founder where you can give them that level of uh, autonomy to take responsibility for owning it. But generally speaking, I'd say don't hire someone to do something the company's not doing effectively yet. Yeah. So some, maybe it's not 70%, but it's, I mean, at the end of the day though, you hired someone to do customer service. You were already doing customer service. So if you, you, you didn't say like, Hey, we need to do customer service. We're not doing it right now. Will you come help us do customer service that we've never done before? That wasn't what you did. And if you look at those first four hires, that was the only one of the four that like worked out in the short term. Uh, Alex, the BizDev guy who is still with us, it worked out in the long term. But I'd say his first couple of years, we were flailing around a little bit because we hadn't like he just came in and I was like, I don't know, go do whatever you do. Uh, the customer service one was by far the most successful because exactly what you said, we were already doing it. Yeah, we, we, we have, we're already doing it. We know we know how it works. Um, we know. Yeah, I, I like that. And at this point, to be clear, what Michael does with the, the customer service team in no way resembles what I taught him. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying hire someone to come on and do what you're, you tell them to do forever. I'm saying first they do what you do and then they make it their own. They don't like a, a counterexample to this is the first developer we hired. He previously worked at Facebook, really much better programmer than me. So he came in and I was just like, well, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you how to do things. You tell me how to do things. And it failed because I should have been like, first do it the way I've been doing it, even if it's dumb, even if everything's wrong, and then make it your own. Yep. Um, yep. Cool. You want to move on to the next question? Yep. Question four. These days, bootstrapped companies have lost some of their perks as things like remote work and flexible hours are becoming pretty standard. Is there any advantage that we can still offer potential candidates that bigger companies or smaller funded startups cannot? 
This is, in my opinion, but the most interesting and the hardest to answer of these questions. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about this prior to this question coming up? No, but I, I, I well, yes, uh, but not necessarily in the context of bootstrappers. More like, how can leg up compete for talent yeah. and offer unique opportunities? I think one thing that we've already we cut we already covered it, which is when you're hiring, you're not necessarily competing with other startups or funded startups or non non bootstrappers. You're, I think. At the end of the day, there's really when you're hiring your first team member, you're looking for someone who's pretty special, and they're hard to hire to begin with. Meaning, like let's let's just throw out there that they're that they're just a hard nut to crack, and they're not necessarily looking for funded or not funded. They're looking for what's the best use of my time, and what can you offer them? You can offer them long term financial upside, short term financial uh, rewards you know, and then like what long-term career upside learning. These are all the things that are great. Like first hire, like when you're hiring someone for the first time at a company of any size, whether it's funded or not, it's a unique opportunity. So I don't, I guess I, I sort of throw the bootstrapper off of this and say, what, what can, what advantages can a company who's hiring their first employee offer a job candidate? And it's a, there's a lot there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this becomes a much harder question for employee number 10, because at that point, you you don't have the offer of like, well, if you come in like win or fail, we're going to like you're going to get ridiculously good experience from this employee number 10 still getting a little glimpse into the startup thing, but it's more of a safe, stable job for them. So, yeah, okay. It sounds like you're saying for the first hire, it's all about this is just a unique situation you can't, you know, Google can't possibly compete with employee number one. Nope. And that's all there is to it. Yep. That's probably more appealing to someone earlier in their career, I would guess. Like you're, and and I, we haven't said this yet, but I think, I assume you and I both feel this way. Like one common mistake startups make all the time is they go find like the VP of something at a bigger company. As a matter of fact, like where, where you and I used to work kind of made this mistake. They brought in a bunch of big company people because it looks, their resumes are impressive there's nothing in common being a senior software engineer at Google versus being employee number one at a startup. Oh, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Um, so probably anyway, like it, this whole, like you get to be employee number one thing wouldn't work as well on that VP person, but you don't want them anyway. You want someone who's early. They don't have a bunch of bad habits. They're probably really good as an individual contributor, but like I would not be looking at someone who will one day lead the team. Like maybe one day they will, but that that's not even a factor for who your first hire is. I think that's another mistake I made. I tried to bring people on who would be leaders and mm-hmm. that's just not what the job is. You mm-hmm. know, they have to have the capacity potential. Uh, yeah. They don't even leaders. have to like, they should. it's good. It's good if they do, but yeah. yeah, you need someone though that can lead like at, at the first employee stage, like to be able to talk to you, they, they need to lead you to a degree. Sorry, I mean like people management, yeah. I guess. You yeah. do not need people managers at that stage. No, that that's a learned skill for people who are interested in it. If if anyone can learn that skill, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So let's summarize. I, I think there's like a vague point we're making, which is the right type of person will be so enticed by the fact that they're effectively a co-founder without taking on anywhere near the amount of risk of being a co-founder. That's, that is what it's... A, that by itself is a pretty big selling point. What about if we can generalize a little bit more and talk about what about employee number five and number 10? What can bootstrap companies do to compete? Sounds like you've thought about this. I'd love to hear your your thoughts. 
Okay, so I have thought about this, but mostly it's been those depressing thoughts where you're like, oh man, this is tough. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I, I think it got a lot harder with, with every, all these other companies going remote and uh, just tech salaries in general are so high right now. Um, I think Google makes something like $1.5 million in revenue per employee. It's just, how do you compete with that? And then you add stock options to that. Tech stocks are going crazy. So yeah. you get you work at a tech company, you're getting options. Those options are multiplying in value like never before. Yeah. So um, it's, it's you're not going to compete on money, especially if we're talking about like engineering talent. I, I'll actually say at Less Learning CRM, we pay our customer service people twice market rate or something. Uh, it's very easy to pay traditionally underappreciated people more than market rate. So it might be that simple for customer service. If you're talking about designers and engineers, that's not going to work. You're not going to compete on that, I don't think. So I've got two ideas here, neither of which I, I think are very satisfying. One is you can just move slowly. Like every other company in the world is in such a huge rush that they want results immediately. And what that means is they're going to try to hire people who are already proven. They're going to try to de-risk it as much as they can. This is kind of less annoying CRM strategy has kind of been hire people who don't have the skills yet uh, and give them the skills, which just a lot of these other companies won't do. You agree with that or have any thoughts on that? What, what I'm hearing at a higher level is in the early stages of the business, offer basically a shortcut to senior to senior pay position and experience for younger people. In the later stages, offer basically pivot to the, to basically go, that's not our advantage anymore. Our advantage now is have a peaceful job, have a, have a, have a calm job. Yeah. Um, and that is something, uh, I don't know when I talk to people who work at just whatever random company, they're all stressed. The whole world is stressed. Even if they're working at Google or, you know, whatever dream job they're stressed. So I, I do think there's some value in calm. Um, another thing I had was, I'm guessing most, so what's so funny, the bootstrap world is so remote. I actually think it's an advantage in this case to not be remote because if you're remote, yes, you have access to the whole world, but you're also competing with the whole world. It used to be the case that companies like Google weren't hiring remotely, but that has changed. I actually think we can, we have at Lessening CRM access to a different talent pool by virtue of being in St. Louis, despite what the bootstrapper world would have you believe a lot of employees want to go into an office. Maybe not every day, but they don't want to be fully remote. They like the, you know, the, the social experience. They, they like having an office given to them so they don't have to take over their home life and having clear segmentation between work and personal. And if you're in not the Bay Area or New York, unfortunately, I think Akshay is in New York, but <laughs> if you're in a city like St. Louis, uh, I actually think not being remote is a competitive advantage for hiring some people. Okay. But that's not necessarily a bootstrapper advantage. That's just a, a, uh, a, loca- a location, like how you, how, how you house employees decision. Right. Sorry. So let me finish that thought. Um, in, a, in a city like St. Louis, there aren't other good jobs is the thing. In the Bay Area, all the bootstrapper advantages you get from every company, you get good benefits and good pay, and you don't have a dress code. In St. Louis, if you're not working at Less Annoying CRM, you're working at like Boeing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's not bootstrapper specific, but it's like offer a startup, all the things all good startups are in a place that doesn't have startups, startups. Or, or a tech industry. 
Interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like people aren't going to decide to not be remote. Just they're not going to move to St. Louis to do this. So I don't really think it's constructive to give that advice. <laughs> yeah. So it really, the potentially what bootstrappers can offer to candidates is it are, are, are things that may be attractive to some candidates that funded companies won't do high paid customer service jobs, uh, you know, low pressure goals, um, training, tra- like training processes that aren't scalable. Um, yeah, basically like doing things that are le- like long, t- much more long-term focused, uh, on returns versus short-term returns because you're in it for a longer period of time. Yeah. I didn't do this on purpose, but I've found, um, if you look at our company, there's a pretty high concentration of people who like are a little, I'm going to use the word bohemian, I guess, but like prior to working here, they were not working at Google. They were working at a coffee shop. Um, there are a lot of people who have like really great skill sets, but who don't want to participate in corporate America. Like, yeah. in corporate America. Exactly. So that's definitely, I don't know a, a scalable way to find those people aside from just like go to coffee shops and talk to people. But, uh, we've ended up with a lot of those people and especially the people who don't leave the people who come and leave are the more traditional, ambitious industry corporate workers. The people who come and stay are the ones who are like, if I love my job, I'll work hard, I'll do the nine to five, I'll, I'll put myself into it, but I won't feel that pressure of like, I'm, you know, a part of a system that I don't like, you yeah. know? Yeah. Starbucks employees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have one more unfinished thought here. Go for it. So this is, I've heard this advice related to diversity, but I think it probably could be applied to any form of recruiting. Um, and that's like this idea of stair-stepping basically. And related to diversity, what I, what I heard was every company, when they, they look at themselves, they realize they're not, they don't have a diverse team and they want to fix it. What they do is they go try to hire like a VP or above level person from an underrepresented group as like the starting point to then go recruit more people. And the advice I've heard is do it the opposite direction. That basically anyone who's hot shit doesn't need you and they know they don't need you and you have nothing to offer them. Whereas people who are entry level, just getting their start, they don't have as many options. And so when you, you know, it's all about trust. If you haven't earned trust yet, you need to go after people who are more willing to take a risk, which means they don't already have everything they want. And then after you get some entry level people, you kind of work your way up the ladder rather than going the opposite direction. I think that could kind of work here as well. No, I like it. It's like if, if the best, I mean, you, you want to build a product that attracts a customer with a high amount of pain because when you take away that customer's pain, they're loyal, they pay you more money, you get more out of that relationship. What you're kind of saying is look for the highest skilled job candidates that can help your business, but have like the most pain as it relates to growing their salary, growing their career and give, and, and, basically give them the best product to go build privilege and take it's it, in a way like it could be saying, take advantage of them. But, um, in the, in reality, you're, you're, you're giving, you're, you're taking, you're giving them an opportunity. You have to find the person who's in that pain and wants to be in another place. But those are the people that, um, you, you can offer something to. 
I love that framework for thinking about this because the thing is everyone has different pains. So the example I immediately go to when you say that, have you seen the show Party Down? No. It's super funny. It used to be on Stars. It's like one of my favorite shows ever. Um, the premise is all the characters are work at a catering company, but they're all like aspiring Hollywood people. It's in LA. They all want to be actors or screenwriters or whatever, but they haven't made it yet. So they're at this catering company. And until the show came out, I didn't appreciate Hollywood has huge industries where they treat their workers like shit. I shouldn't say Hollywood. The LA has huge industries where they treat their workers like shit, but they've catered it to the lifestyle of an aspiring actor. So catering is a perfect example of this where they're like, if you have to bail for an audition at the last minute, whatever we have, like, like that's the type of flexibility they have. I'm not saying, you know, tech companies should be going after aspiring actors, but like finding that persona to your point, that pain where it's like, why, what about this person's lifestyle is not being satisfied by all these other companies. And there's a ton. It might be, they have hobbies during the day and they want to work at night. It might be, they need to live in a rural area for some reason, and that creates certain complexities. Whatever they are, yeah, I like this idea of identifying these pains. Yeah, and, and as bootstrapper, you're in a position to to craft something that may be out of the ordinary from a from a venture capital model. This reminds me of another business. You listen to Software Social, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, before I'm a you little started, right now. yeah, okay. This was from one of their earlier episodes. They interviewed, um, I forget her name, but. She started a business. She is a military. The person they interviewed is a military wife. So her husband is like a fighter pilot or something. And she identified there are all these people married to people in the military that basically can't get jobs. They, they have to move around all the time. So there's, there's no stability, all this. And she started a, a VA, a virtual assistant business of all military wives. And that's like a really extreme example of what you're saying. It's like there's this really tight knit, like well-defined group of people that are underemployed right now, and she created an opportunity for them. It's, yeah, finding underemployed people who have the talent and the desire uh, to increase their employability. Yeah. That's like super vague. Yeah. (laughs) I guess the uh, listeners uh, do what you will with that, but I think it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I I, I think there's a lot you can do with that. Um, I'm thinking like one, one that's really interesting is, I feel like there's a huge opportunity. We've talked about this before on the podcast to the stay at home mom. Who's like, uh, got their kids in school, um, that Mm -hmm. doesn't want to work during the summer, but is probably bored out of their mind while their kids are at school, uh, during the school years. Like there's an opportunity there. Yeah, for sure. Um, maybe we can just, my, my last thought on the topic is just to go back to the bigger question of like, how do you attract people? I think this is a harder problem than it's ever been in my 12 years running a business. Attracting tech talent is hard. If you define a great employee the same way Google defines a great employee, you just won't win. So one way or another, you have to change your definition, I think. The exception that I think you've given in this is for the first couple of employees, you can design Mm. a role that competes with the Googles. I think that's fair. Yeah. But yeah. If I, I just generally speaking, try to find talent that other people miss because if everyone's competing for the same Stanford grads, yeah, 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 ugh, it's just tough. No, no, good point. Good point. Cool. Well, that's that's all the questions we have. Do you have any other thoughts or anything you want to talk about here? I don't think so. Um, I yeah. am uh, I'm I'm busy this week trying to catch up. I had a I feel like I'm behind. I don't know why, but yeah. I am. All right. Well, let's uh, let's call it then, so you can get back to it. All right.
Hey everyone, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, I have a favor to ask. Please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. If you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. See you next week. See you.